So Israel constantly rebelled against God. If we look at Israel time and time again, a prophet would, would be sent and the people wouldn't listen. Right? It would take an enemy warring against them. It would take them going into captivity, going into slavery. Something would have to happen in order for Israel to finally listen throughout this. And this consistent theme in the Old Testament makes this, this chapter in Jonah, chapter 3, it makes it that much more intriguing. Because here we're going to see this wicked people that we've talked about. They're the worst of the worst we could imagine. I mean, really heinous war crimes, torturing their enemies. So wicked that God sent them a message that he would personally destroy them. Uh, that, that is God's message. I will destroy you is pretty much what he says. I'm going to destroy this city off the face of the earth. But as we will see, this evil people gives a surprise response to the message of the warning to Jonah. It indeed is a radical response, as we've entitled the message today. So as you study the third chapter of this book, I want you to consider your response to the Word of God, to the Word of God that we have even here, to the Bible. Do you respond to it in humility like we're going to see the Ninevites do, or do you respond like Jonah did in chapter 1? And so we're going we're to discuss three ways that we can rightly respond to God, that we should respond. And the first one actually is the should not. And I want to say we should not respond to the Word of God reluctantly. We should not respond reluctantly. I'm going to read the first four verses here as we get into this first point. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey and breath. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. I'll go to the next slide. It'll bring back verses 1 and 2. If we look at verse 1, this looks eerily familiar, doesn't it? Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah, right? We, we, that's exactly how we started off in chapter 1. You know, it, it's, like, it's like, okay, we just hit a reset button, but there was a, a big interlude in between there called a big fish. Uh, we, we see Jonah thrown in to the ocean, a great fish with the Mediterranean Sea. A great fish swallows him up and then has now spit him onto the, probably the shores of Palestine. But this, yet in chapter 3, this word comes to a changed man. He's a different guy. He's went through a lot. We read chapter 2. He, he, has, he has prayed this eloquent prayer, especially based in the Psalms. You can just see the word of God flowing through him. Yet he may not be as changed as we'd like to think, as we'll see next week. But this is the same word of God that we see in chapter 1 and chapter 3. Uh, Jonah's antics have not changed God's mind or changed God's message. Nothing Jonah did, his fleeing, his, his disobedience, nothing changed the word of God. Just like today, nothing changes the word of God. The message was still the same. We're given a little more information about what that message is in chapter 3, but the message is still the same. Smith and Page in their commentary press in on the mercy of God in these first two verses. So not everybody's been given a second chance in the Bible. If we look back at Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve, they sin in the garden one time, what happens? They, they end up dying in the future, right? Death enters the world by one man, so sin has entered, right? By one man, praise the Lord, sin has been released and, and has been paid for and accounted for by the blood of Christ. Then we see Numbers 20, verse 12. What does Moses do? He strikes the rock and speaks to it. He disobeys the Lord. He has a bad attitude, but has a bad heart, is not humble. He's prideful in this moment. And what happens? He's not able to lead Israel into the promised land. He's not given a second chance. He's not given that. Now, praise God, we do live in a world with a God 
that is amazing and gives many of us second chances. So we praise God for those second chances. But we should not rebel and presume upon this second chance like Jonah does. Because a lot of people don't get that second chance, and so we should not live in that, right, that, in that way. And Romans 9.15 should scare you to the point where you don't live that way. And, and we see in Romans 9.15 one of the hardest scriptures in the Bible quoted from Exodus. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. God is sovereign. We just talked about that this morning uh, in growth group in the book of Job. God is sovereign, and we should not presume upon his mercy. He has mercy on whom he wills. It's a very difficult teaching, but it is truth nonetheless. Well, then moving on to verse 2, we see that, uh, that Yahweh gave a direct and verbatim message for Jonah to deliver. This is the message that he gave to, 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 to uh, Jonah here. He's going to say, hey, this is what I want you to tell them. And Jonah was not allowed to change that message. He was not allowed to interpret it the way he wanted to interpret it. He was not able to creatively express it the way he wanted to create it. He was to say the word that the Lord gave him. And that's my job as well. My job is to take the word of God and proclaim it as the Word of God, not to change it the way I want to, to reinterpret it or present it a little bit more pretty than I think. Maybe I, maybe I don't like that verse. Oh, God has you know, mercy and compassion upon whom he wants to. Well, that's, that could be offensive, so I'm going to change that. I'm going to rewrap that. I'm going to pack it up in a different way. That's not my job. My job is not to give my, opi- my opinion or my feelings on the Word of God. My job is to not recreate or reinterpret it. I'm to do what God has called me to do. And the Word of God, this is a good lesson in hermeneutics or the study of Scripture. The Word of God is most often singular in purpose, singular in interpretation. What it says, it means, and what it means, it says. It's, you don't have to really dig this crazy deep trench to try to figure it out. It says what it says. And so the interpretation is most often singular. It's not this could mean this or this or this. Most of the time it means what it means there if we look at it. But the applications of the Word of God are endless in our lives. And so, so the same scripture that can, that can uh, call a child to a certain thing can call an adult to a certain thing that are completely different. One can be in the school or at home, and one can be in the workplace. You know, it, but it can look completely different, but the application could be different. But the truth is the same, and the life applications are endless. Sadly, that's not the way many preach today. If we look today, I really want to earnestly warn you, as I have in the past, that so many so-called pastors will try to interpret the Word of God and recreate it, reimagine it to make it pretty, to make it fit what you want it to fit, to make it, make it seem really, really good. Beware of those who provide their own, its own opinions and their own reinterpretations. And frankly, many of these men are in churches that are huge, and they have a lot of people that want to hear what their itching ears want to hear. And they, and they, but, but God will judge such men who take His Word and they twist it to fit their own agenda and their own uh, things and actually there is a word for what they're doing and it's called blasphemy it is a huge issue and take that warning yourself as well when you take the word and you're trying to apply it and help help someone apply it when we twist god's word to say what it does not say we are blaspheming we are saying that god says something he did not and that is a huge deal H- how upset do you get if one of your children come to you and say or go to, go to one of your other children and say hey you know mom or dad said this but mom or dad actually didn't say that you know, it happens sometimes, right? And we've done that, probably to our parents, and said, Mom or Dad said you were supposed to share two of those Oreos. Mom or Dad has no idea, that, you know, about this situation, but, but you're taking their name in vain, right? You're, you're, you're applying them. God doesn't like that either. That, that is a big issue. It, it is blasphemy. So God is zealous for his word, and to twist or misuse it 
is a huge deal. Then we get into verse 3, and we see, so he arises and goes to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. And then we see that Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breath. As Elsie Allen states in his commentary, Jonah is now compliant as everything else we've seen in this book, right? So, so we've seen the servants, the, the fish, the great fish. We've seen the ship. We've seen the ocean and the waves and the climate. Everything has been obeying Yahweh. And finally, we see Jonah bend to the will of Yahweh eventually here. He obeys, but note that he doesn't answer God again. So if we look at most of the prophetic narratives, we see an interchange. Uh, a lot of times there'll be a, who am I? You know, I, I'm, not, I'm not, I'm nobody. Look at Moses when he's called. I can't even talk. How am I supposed to go and do this? Like, and so, so there's a lot of issues. And so you'll, you'll see some interchange, but eventually the prophet will bend to the will of Yahweh. We'll say, okay, yes, this is what I'm going to do. But there's usually an interchange. There's an acknowledgement, uh, a vocalizing of the fact that I've received the word of the Lord, right? Uh, the, the, the prophet has received, not I, but the prophet has received the word of the Lord, but not Jonah. So after this beautiful prayer in chapter 2 where he's, he's seemingly broken, now we see him do, do what? Like he obeys, but he still doesn't say, yeah, I know, whatever you want, Lord, I'll do. There's still not this humility that like, okay, I'm going to, he begrudgingly, as we see in chapter 4, he, he begrudgingly goes. And this track, if you look at the next uh, uh, thing here, we'll see uh, the map. Let's see if it comes up here. So we got Joppa. So most likely this is where he left from. So Joppa, he was going to Tarshish, which, if you remember, was way across the Mediterranean Sea. Well, this great fish has brought him back and most likely spit him right back out where he started, as we talked about last week. We got about a 500 mile journey to Nineveh, which took about a month. A lot of times when we read these historical narratives, we kind of just are like, we see the scene, and then we all, okay, now he's here, now he's here, and we kind of miss the fact that this probably took about a month uh, on a donkey or a camel, maybe even longer if he went on foot. Obviously, we've already talked about how he probably didn't smell very well, and I can't imagine even after a month, that smell being gone after being in a fish for three days. I don't know if you all have been fishing, but once you get your hands fishy, it takes about a week before you smell normal again. I don't know about that, but um, but there's really no sign that he's obeyed with great intentions. And then we see that this, this city is called a great city. And we see that it is three days' journey in breath. That is a big city to think about. Uh, so we're probably looking at a city that's somewhere 45 to 60 miles in breath. And in chapter 4, we'll see that they have 120,000 people, which back then that was a huge city. I know we have New York City. We have a lot more population today. But that was a very big city back then. And now, after 150 years from, from this book, from, from this message that Jonah gives, we do know that the city was completely destroyed. I hate to kind of burst the bubble there. We're going to see a great repentance. That's great. But eventually, 150 years later, it got to the point where Xenophon, a philosopher and historian who was a Greek uh, and a military leader, walked past this in about 401 B.C., didn't even notice that there was ever a city there because they'd have been destroyed and taken to rubble so badly. But if we look at this point, this is such a, a great and big city. Then, then verse 4, we see that he makes it about a day's journey into the city, so he's going about a third of the way there, and he starts proclaiming the message of the Lord. He starts, he starts talking about what is coming. And notice that this is not, and, and what he says is, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And I think it's really important to see that this is not a guaranteed prophecy. And the reason I would say that is, obviously we see it's not guaranteed because we're going to see God relent in the end. But we also know, like Sodom and Gomorrah, the angels didn't go and say, in 40 days, I will destroy you. God just did it. He got Lot out and his family, and then he did it. 
because he wasn't giving them a warning. And that's why Jonah didn't want to go. Because Jonah knew when he went and he proclaimed this message that there was a chance. Now, he probably thought it was a very small chance because Nineveh was a horrible city, a very wicked city. But he knew that there was a chance if I deliver this message, that means they have an opportunity to repent. When God really wants to do something, he just does it. There's not a warning. It's, hey, fire's raining from heaven. This city is, these, these two cities are gone. Uh, you know, and so he knows that this is happening. This was a warning. God would have just rained it down if he was going to bring it. And note the word choice that Jonah is given here, overthrown. You know, we hear that, and I mean, overthrown, it's got somewhat of a context in, in our English here. But this actually, this word overthrown meant taken to rubble, a heap of ruins. It, it means it would be completely destroyed or completely demolished. It wasn't just you have this king and he gets overthrown and there's still a city there. It's like, no, this entire place is going to get wiped out. I will destroy it is what God is saying. The message is clear. This city is doomed to destruction. It will no longer be on the face of the earth. We'll get into Nineveh and their response in these next two points, but I want to think about Jonah for a minute and how he reluctantly proclaims this message of the Lord. You know, it's so important to see his reluctance here, and we need to learn that even though he obeys, we, we need to obey in the right way. There is a right way to obey, and our heart needs to be in it. Now, we need to obey even when we don't feel like it, and sometimes our heart will follow our obedience, and so that's really important. You know, it, you, you don't just follow your heart and say, well, I just don't really feel like doing it today, so I'm not going to do it. No, we need to obey, and then hopefully we've got to pray that God helps our heart to follow in that obedience. But what will help us obey God is that we spend time reflecting on His goodness and His grace and His mercy. When we, when we spend time thinking about how good and how great that He has been to us, it will help us to obey with the right attitude. And we must obey wholeheartedly and not reluctantly. The next point we see, we should respond rightfully. We should respond rightfully. Join me as I read verses 5 through 8. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose, and, or he rose from his throne and removed his robe and covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his, wicked, from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. These verses come out of nowhere. I mean, you think about what we know about Assyria. And what we've known about Nineveh and how horrible that these, these people are, that they have been. I mean, they have been awful, awful people. If you read back in the book of Kings, you see the evil of Assyria and just how horrible they were, how anti-God that they were. And yet, Jonah proclaims this quick message. says, hey, y'all are going down. And, and, and all of a sudden, there is just a humbling. Uh, and they believed and they acted. They put on sackcloth from the least of them to the greatest Talk about a radical response. Here is a pagan culture known for their brutality in war, and these just, just being godless as far as, like, they had different false gods, but they were really more godless. They were just pagan, kind of did whatever they wanted to. They had lacked no conscience before. And you see that it even reaches the king of Nineveh. And the king of Nineveh literally just says, hey, everybody, from the least, everyone, even the animals, like, that's how big of a deal this was. He said, hey, even the animals aren't going to eat or drink. And we're going to put sackcloth on the animals. Could you imagine walking around and seeing like donkeys and stuff with sackcloth on them? I mean, this was, you know, he, he so, so this king knew that, that his people were 
were pagan. He knew that they struggled with, with worshiping false gods, and so he wanted to make sure, hey, there was an outward response here too. And if you look at Smith and Page uh, in their commentary, they actually talk about the Ninevites' reaction, and they give three verbs, believe, declared, and put on. And I kind of want to go through these uh, things because I think we can apply them to our own life too. So the Ninevites re- responded rightfully to the word of the Lord. They first believed the word of the Lord inwardly. They first believed the word of the Lord inwardly. We look at Hebrews 4, 12, and 13. It is a living and active word of God. If we truly believe it, then it starts inwardly. It starts in our hearts. And so we take that word of God and we make it ours. We, we believe it. Second, they declared or proclaimed the word of the Lord. They articulated what they had received and they agreed with it. So Jesus made this following statement that is terrifying to modern day believers who take more of a hands-off approach to Christianity. I'm going to read this, and this is a tough verse. This is Jesus speaking in Luke 9, 26. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. So true believers proclaim the word of God, and they share the gospel with those around them. They aren't ashamed of being Christian, and they spread the message of the gospel, the word of the Lord to, the, to those around them. This is a rightful response to the word of God. And finally, the Ninevites put on the word of God by putting on sackcloth and repentance. So they started by inwardly believing the message. The, the message was brought outwardly, it was brought to them. They inwardly believe the message. Then they articulate and they agree with it. And then it becomes outward in their action. And, and that is the true steps of repentance. That's how it works. You're turning from your sin, you take the message inwardly, you articulate it, and then you follow. And that is part of following Christ. They showed a great response to this message. Many scholars will question whether Assyria truly repented. Was this a saving faith? Does does God accept this radical response of Nineveh at the time. And, and, and a lot of, a lot of uh, scholars, as I was reading, they, they kind of kept going against that idea. And obviously we know that the city was destroyed, as we've already kind of talked about, 150 years later. We see that the city will be destroyed. But there are st- steps of repentance. There's certainly a lot we can learn from. And I would go so far as to say that this is a true repentance. And I, I know it, it would be hard for me to stand against different scholars that may disagree with that, but I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stand with Jesus on this one, who in Luke 11:32 says this, The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. And I'll take this just to kind of give another lesson, that just because somebody's a scholar doesn't mean they believe the Bible. And I think this is a big issue. And, and even, even solid theologians may overthink things, and they may not take the word of God in full counsel. And Jesus has already said here, hey, you know you people, you religious leaders who are not listening to what I'm telling you, that I am the son of God, that, that, that through me all can be saved? You know, you're going to be judged by Nineveh. That is how bad you are. The, the Ninevites will, will, will actually help judge and accuse you when you stand at the judgment. He refers to their repentance and states that they, that they repented. And I'll agree with Jesus on that one. Some might wonder why this group of people, known for these evil atrocities and just being horrible, why would they respond so quickly and so humbling? And obviously we know the number one is God was working on their hearts. So God has mercy on whom he will have mercy, right? And he has compassion on whom he will have compassion. And he reaches down to our hearts and he will draw us to him. That is how salvation happens for any of us. God draws us to him, but he uses afflictions that he allows us to go through. 
He uses his afflictions. And if we look historically, uh, there, uh, the, according to astronomic history, there was a full eclipse of the sun around 763 B.C., which is right before this message is, is proclaimed. So, so you have the Ninevites, and they've already been warring against other countries around them. They have tons of, of countries that are coming against them, and they're not winning as many battles as they used to. They're struggling a little more. There's some famine in the land. Uh, you know, just things aren't going well for Nineveh and Assyria. And then they see this, this huge supernatural thing, a total eclipse of the sun. If you've ever seen a total eclipse of the sun, I mean, everything goes black. I mean, you think about in, in back in ancient times when they didn't really know a lot about astronomy. They didn't know how things lined up and, 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 those kind of, and, and how the, the solar system looked. They didn't understand it. Think about how supernatural that was. And so God had prepared their hearts to hear this, this word. And as we discussed last week, God allows suffering to help us to see that there is a need for a Savior. He allows suffering to show the need of a Savior. And the Ninevites' hearts had been prepared by the Lord for this message. And I want to take that and apply it to us too. It, is your heart ready for the word of the Lord? I pray it doesn't take afflictions like it did with Jonah. I, pr- I pray that it doesn't take horrible things happening in your life and struggles that are happening in your life in order to, for you to respond to that message. But if it does, if you are somebody and you still haven't fully responded to the gospel, I pray it takes whatever it takes because I care more about your soul eternally than I care about your happiness on earth or how healthy you are on earth. We talked about Job you know, and God sovereignly working through that. I pray that whatever it takes, that he acts on your life to save you from the fire of hell. And for those who are believers, I pray that, that, that it doesn't take suffering at times to, to, to turn you fully toward following the Lord. Uh, when, when we go off of the path, God uses afflictions at times to put us back on it because he loves us too much to let us continue to go off the path. He, he, will, he says that he won't let anybody pluck them out of his hand. He will grab you and he will put you back on the path if you are a true believer in him. If you've not responded to the free gift of salvation, if you've not fully placed your trust in Jesus Christ, the one who was born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified on the cross some 2,000 years ago, raised three days later, and is now at the right hand of the Father, and he died for our sins, to cover our sins. I pray that you respond to the word of the Lord, the gospel. And if you are, if you are a believer, I pray that you respond to his word with your life, with every decision that you make, that you hold his word in high regard and that you're obedient to the commands of God. And finally, in our third point, we should respond respectfully. We should respond respectfully. I'm going to read these last two verses. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we, might, we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. See how respectful this this pagan king is to Yahweh. just really blows my mind to think about how, how this pagan cruise ship in chapter 1 responded humbly. Now here, here this pagan king is responding humbly to the word of God and humbly. And then the irony is that the prophet of God, Jonah, is so much slower to respond in repentance and obedience than these pagan people are. Just is so ironic to, to look at this. And again, the, the, the king has seen so many people or so many times that people would fake religion in his culture. And he, he, he wants them to show a true showing of humility and repentance. He, he said, don't only cry out for mercy, but turn from your wickedness. He wanted to see follow through. And we may miss this, this, this uh, first phrase here. 
in, uh, in chapter 9, or in verse 9, it says, who knows? Who knows? And I think, that, I think we have to see how that is ap- appealing to God's mercy. Who knows whether, and we might say that and be like, oh, well, that sounds like he's just kind of guessing. He's just not sure. Well, what it is, is it is an appeal to the mercy of God. It is knowing that God is fully sovereign, that he is in control of everything, and that he is the one that has the power to fix this and to, and to change course and to not destroy them. We see this in Joel chapter 14. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent? Or Esther 414, and who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. It's seen elsewhere time and time again too, and each time it acknowledges the sovereign hand of God. And here is this pagan king acknowledging the sovereign hand of God, that God, just the same God that could put his hand on them to destroy them in 40 days is the same God that could remove that hand of judgment. The same God that could, if they repented, could decide, no, I won't destroy them. How amazing is that, that this pagan this pagan king has humbled himself. My friends, there is no better place to appeal than the mercy of God. Is there any better place? Mercy means not getting what we deserve. Nineveh deserved judgment. Nineveh deserved the fire from heaven to fall upon them like Sodom and Gomorrah. We deserve hell. We deserve judgment. But God has shown his great mercy through Christ so that we don't have to experience that judgment. If we put our faith and trust in him, he will forgive us, and we won't have to face that. In verse 10, we see even to this pagan wicked nation, God relented to the disaster. It says, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented. Isn't that a wonderful word? God relented. My friends, that story is our story too. We were dead in our sins. We deserved hell. It says there is no one good, not even one in Romans chapter 3. We deserved the judgment of God. But God relented. And why did God relent on us who are believers? Because of what Christ did on the cross. Because of what he did on the cross, he relented. He said, no, heaven is open to you because of what my son's done on the cross. Just respond to the gospel. Believe in him, and you will be saved. Turn from your sins, and you will be saved. And some of you may live your life running from the Lord because of sin in your life. And you know what? You've blown it. You've blown it in the past. You've done all kinds of bad things, and you're like, I'm not worthy of his love. I'm not worthy of his forgiveness. I'm not worthy of anything right now. And you know what? You're right. You're right. You're not worthy, and I'm not worthy, and none of us here are worthy of, of forgiveness, are worthy of God relenting, just like Nineveh was not worthy of God not to destroy that city in 40 days, but yet God in his great mercy relented. Now, if you are an enemy of God, and as, you, as we know historically speaking, this generation that we're talking about right now repented and, re- and God relented. How great is that? I like that's a nice little saying there. You repent, God relents. That's a, that's a great, great saying to think about. Just made that up on the fly here. Um, so I didn't actually plan that one. That's how God works sometimes. I'm like, hey, I need to write that on a bumper sticker, right? That's kind of it. Um, but those who are his enemies, as we see 150 years later, as we see even in our, in our families, and, and we see in Israel's history, generation after generation may forget who the Lord is. Uh, they, they may turn back to their wicked ways, and they may go against what he says. And 150 years later, they were destroyed. And we see in Hebrews 10.31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. 
We should fear God if we are not a believer, if we are not in Christ. To die without the blood of Christ covering your sins is to be feared of anything else. Anything else that you have, if you have a fear of anything else, it should be of God first and foremost if you are not in Christ. But for those who are in Christ, we need not fear our Savior. Psalm 103.8 says this, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. All that abounding in steadfast love. Sometimes we, we hear that word steadfast, we don't quite get it. That's persevering love. It is love that perseveres no matter how many times that you blow it. If you are in Christ, he will continue to forgive you. And we, and we look at Jesus' teaching on forgiveness, how many times should I forgive? Well, he says seven times 77. What he means is infinity. You should forgive your brother in infinite times, just like I have forgiven you, is what God would say, of infinity times. Our sin, we can't even count them. You know, we look at our, our past day and we may be like, oh yeah, I probably sinned three or four times. No, you probably sinned about three or four hundred times. I mean, you know, we sin so many times and God continues to forgive us. We just, only re- we just need to repent to keep that relationship right with him as we talked about in growth group day by day. We can rest in the shadow of the Almighty. We can go to our Heavenly Father who is merciful and gracious and we will be accepted because of Christ's great work on the cross. Not because of our great works, because of his great works. And just like we can't, take, we can't take any authority or any blessing because of the, the great works that we do, we also have to realize that nothing can separate us from him too. So when we look at our past, our past can't be too bad for him not to, to accept us and love us. We, we can't do enough bad stuff for him to hate us once we're in Christ. We only need to repent and turn to him. Today's message has been a radical one. We have seen a pagan city turn from their wicked way and God relent in his judgment. As we'll see in chapter 4, Jonah's not so happy about this. But we should be very happy about this because you know who the Ninevites were? Gentiles. You know who we are? Gentiles. That means non-Israelites. And so this account right here in the Old Testament is the, the, the hope that would come to us through Jesus Christ. That God would relent on judging us because of Jesus. How amazing is that? If you have not put your faith and trust in Jesus, I'd love to talk to you after the service. If you have, I pray that we live a life of radical response to Jesus Christ and his word. This last slide, we'll go ahead and open up. May may we not respond reluctantly to the word. May we respond rightfully to it, and may we respond respectfully to it. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this wonderful day that you've given us. Lord, we love you, we praise you, and we thank you. As we get ready for communion here in just a little while, the Lord's Supper, uh, may you help us prepare our hearts to understand the gospel even more fully and thoroughly. God, we love you, we praise you, we thank you, and may you help us go throughout this week and make you known to the nations. Amen.